0: Well, good morning, friends, and happy new year. Oh, listen to that. Wonderful. Uh, I'm Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here, and today we have a wonderful treat. Many of you know it. It's probably why you got up on the first of the year um, to be here, um, even though it was a late night for some of you. Uh, I turned into a pumpkin after 9 p.m., so it was not me. But for some of you, this is an early morning after a late night. So thank you for being here to support our friend, our continued pastor, And Brother Ben Beasley, um, who will be preaching. Yeah, come on, there you go. (laughs) Who will be preaching for us this morning as we re engage the series as we're walking through the gospel account of John. And this morning's passage comes from John chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. Would you hear now God's word to us? Six days before the Passover, who was to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the crowd, the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
1: Good morning. morning. It's good to be back with you this morning. Uh, It's a real treat for me. So it's lovely to see all of your faces again. And For those again who don't know me, my name is Ben, and I was the associate pastor here at the downtown campus up until a few months ago. Sorry, my voice is kind of gone this morning, so I wasn't out late, it's that late last night, okay? I promise. Um, I left to go head out east to pursue my second masters, and I don't know about you, but for me, the last few months have flown by. Being back here in Kansas City again for the last few days, In some ways, it makes it feel like I never left. And to add even more deja vu to this experience, when Gabe and I were talking about uh, discussing my return and opportunity to preach, he sent me the passage that had been scheduled for today. And believe it or not, the last sermon that I preached here was the passage directly before the passage today. (laughs) It was on John 11. And so that was like strange and unexpected and weird. Um, and it just added this sense that time hadn't really moved on. Even so, while it feels like not much has changed, it is not lost on me that at the same time, a lot has changed. Time always presses on, and it moves on quickly. Life happens to us, we change, and we make decisions that change, change us and change our lives. During my sermon today, I hope to both preach our passage, but at the same time just share with you a bit about my last few months. And to start, I'd like to ask, or I'd like to begin by asking you this question. Have you ever seen something from a distance, and you thought you knew what it was, but then you get closer, and that's not at all what it is? Maybe you saw someone from a distance that you thought was like a friend, and then you get closer, and it's not at all someone you knew, but you've already waved at them, so it's like, ah. (laughs) Maybe you start to work on some problem around your house, and you think it's one thing that's coming from somewhere that leads to another place, and then you get close enough, and boom, it's something else completely. Or maybe you deal with personal issues, or you're dealing with personal issues, you head to counseling, and you thought it was a certain problem that you had, but then, The source of it actually is this source of some other trauma that you didn't understand before, before you got closer to yourself. Here's one more example. And I just had to include this because it was a part of my Christmas. Sitting around my Christmas table, our family conversation turned to Bigfoot, strangely enough. Um, And I was actually the instigator of this, I have to confess. But believe it or not, there um, there's a video that came out this summer that was the best look at what some people, Bigfoot believers, think is Bigfoot. Uh, if you haven't seen the video, you can go online and check it out. There's nothing really like profound about the video. The problem is the video is just not quite close enough to get a grasp on really is this Bigfoot or not. You know, it's not quite close enough. And all of these examples, our nearness to these things allows us to grasp what it really is. Our nearness helps us with our encounter. There's nothing really profound about that. It's just the way it works, and however, in our passage today, we get a grip of the radical nearness of Jesus. And by that, I mean Jesus' humanity. We see that Jesus is so, so near. And the nearness of Jesus helps us grasp two key insights. The first insight is what I call the extravagant and wasteful grace of God. And the second insight is this, just because Jesus is near to us doesn't necessarily mean we are near to him. That's a bit of where we're headed, but first I just want to talk briefly about the Gospel of John, since this is our first Sunday back in this Gospel in a while. John is different from the other Gospels, The other gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're called the synoptic gospels. They have a lot of similarities and one of those similarities is that they cover a lot of the same material. The gospel of John is quite different. It has a different style. It covers some different material. And for example, we're re-engaging the gospel of John here in chapter 12 and that means that we have nine full chapters to go before we finish the gospel. And here's what's interesting. Seven of those nine chapters deal with the last week of Jesus's life. That's it, the last week. The last week of Jesus's life before he was crucified. John just comes at Jesus with a different lens to his life and ministry. And as I mentioned before, my last sermon that I preached here was on John 11. And in John 11, Jesus raises a dead man from the dead, or raises a man from the dead, his name is Lazarus. Lazarus is the brother of two sisters, Mary and Martha. This story is miraculous. But it's not all sunshine and rainbows. The story of Lazarus' death is riddled with loss and confusion and grief. His family's wondering why Jesus hadn't come sooner. It's filled with tears, tears even from Jesus. And then at the end, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and our passage today picks up after that miracle. We pick up as everyone is still kind of reeling from what Jesus did. And if you were to think of yourself as the sisters of Lazarus, if you were to imagine yourself as Mary and Martha, what would you do after Jesus raised a family member of yours from the dead? What would you you do? Would you call the local news station? Would you take a trip somewhere to celebrate? What would you do? Well, Mary and Martha's response feels pretty human to me. You know what they do? They invite Jesus to dinner. They invite him to a thank you dinner and turn with me to John 12. We're going to start in verse 1. If you have a Bible, you can pull it out. I don't believe it will be on the screen behind me because I didn't get my slides in in time. That was my fault. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, So there are a couple things happening here. The most significant is that Mary anoints Jesus with really expensive oil. And regardless of Mary's motivations for anointing Jesus with oil, it is very clear how Jesus interprets Mary's action. Did you catch it? Jesus says that she's basically preparing him to be buried. Remember, this is the final week of Jesus' life. He knows he is going to die. That's why he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to die. His disciples around him are clueless, even though he keeps trying to tell them. Mary probably doesn't even totally understand this as she's anointing him, yet Jesus knows he's going to die, and he interprets Mary's action for everyone. And this is an important theological point that we should take from this passage. Jesus is saying this act from Mary is a prophetic act. Through this act, Jesus, is, Jesus prophesies his own death. He knows he's on his way to die. But for me, the most compelling part of this passage is not the theological point that Jesus prophesies about his own death. That's, I don't want to downplay that, but that's not what stands out to me here. I was just talking about this passage with my family over Christmas in Ohio, I realized The most compelling part of this passage I mentioned before is the nearness of Jesus. By that I mean the humanity of Jesus, the intimacy of the interaction between Mary and Jesus. In terms of proximity, Mary is so close to Jesus. Think for a second of how aware she is of Jesus' humanity. She is staring at his feet she is touching his feet, she is using her own hair that flows over her shoulders to wipe this expensive ointment on him. She is touching his bony feet. Jesus is so near to Mary and Mary is so near to Jesus. This action of anointing Jesus with oil makes it clear that Mary has seen Jesus for who, she re- who he really is. She's recognizing him as the Messiah, the Son of God. But what's interesting is that recognition, unlike us sometimes when we approach God, we, we feel like we need to take a step back or we get scared or whatever it is that doesn't lead her away or scare her or bring up shame. Mary goes closer to him and Jesus welcomes her at his feet. What Mary does is an outpouring of love It's an extravagant and wasteful wasteful display of faith and worship. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus welcomes her. Do you notice how the other followers of Jesus respond? Well, Judas rebukes her. In verse 5, he said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now John follows up and tells us that Judas had selfish motivations for this. He was in charge of the money and he was taking some, a cut of it for himself. But let me go out on a limb here. Judas looks at this situation with Mary and the only way he can make sense of it is to condemn it because the right thing or the sensible thing would be for her to do something practical. His main category was this sense of of practicality, this like sensibility. And it was impossible for him to view this action as anything but just wasteful. Because of that, Judas misses the whole point. This act was extravagantly beautiful precisely because it was a wasteful display of faith and worship. Yet for Judas, all it amounted to was spilled oil that was a lost opportunity. The oil was a lost opportunity to be a commodity to be utilized and exchanged for a measurable outcome. For Judas, as a representative of the disciples here, this beautiful, wasteful act was superseded by the sensible and the practical. Here's the catch, Jesus didn't see it that way He defends Mary, he says leave her alone. Jesus sees Mary's action from a totally different lens. For Jesus, the beauty of the action supersedes the practicality. It is precisely because Mary's action is impractical and wasteful that makes it a beautiful and priceless gift. For Jesus, the wastefulness and the extravagance and the impracticality is precisely what makes it beautiful. So how are we to make sense of it? Well, I think there's two ways we can go. Go with me here. Sometimes, I wonder how much we are like Judas. When Jesus' disciples, the ones closest to him, particularly Judas, when they saw Mary do this, they were appalled. How often are we, as individuals and as a church, convinced that the beautiful must submit to the practical? Like Judas, are we not able to recognize wastefulness as an extravagant display of faith? Are we not able to be walked into ways of wastefulness? Because the practical is always what matters most. When I left Christ Community in late August, I transitioned to Princeton only a day after my final day at work. It was a whirlwind. I ended one season and began another so quickly and from the start of the semester, I had three months, and I was to re-ingratiate re-engage, re-engage, myself into the academic world, and even more, I needed to impress professors to get their recommendations, and come with a reputable research interest, and apply to PhD programs, and finish all my coursework, and do all my reading, and it's and equally important, balance that with my relationship with my girlfriend, and with family, and try to, and friends, and, honor everyone and I was so overwhelmed and I was stressed most of the time and as I reflect on the semester, I think back over the semester, I think, I think and I wonder, when did I let the beautiful and the wasteful supersede the practical? My practical was the to-do's, it was the assignments, it was the pressure to perform, it was that every hour needed to be accounted for to make steps forward and if I wasn't doing that, I was sleeping or I was trying to sneak in a workout Maybe I missed the beauty of the wastefulness of just letting the clock tick and tick and giving that time to God. Time with Him, if it was extended in any dramatic way, felt impractical, felt wasteful, it felt counterproductive to what I was trying to do. But maybe that is precisely where the beauty was. The beauty was in those moments where I did set everything down, and I did let the clock pass, and I pushed everything back, and this wasteful display of what was most precious to me, which was time, was actually what Jesus saw as a beautiful sacrifice and a gift. So in this last season, I think I often let the practical dominate the beautiful. And here's a question that I asked myself when I read this passage. What would it take for me to be like Mary? For you, does the beauty of something extravagant, an extravagant display of faith, does it forever get superseded by by practicality? What would it take for you to do something so wasteful and extravagant as an act of faith and worship? Jesus isn't totally against practicality. But does the practicality dominate the beautiful, extravagant acts of faith that make up the life of worship to God? I don't know what season you're coming out of, and I don't want to presume, maybe you're doing that, but perhaps you haven't felt the sense of just wanting to toss everything at Jesus' feet in a while. I've gotten lost in the immediacy of the present moment, the practical to-dos, the minutiae, And when I was reading this passage, the simple prayer came to mind was, was, God, I want to be like Mary. Make me like Mary. So if you're like me and the practical has forever superseded the beautiful these last few months, maybe you can join me in an effort of changing that this next year. I think we can learn from Judas. Just because Jesus is near to us doesn't necessarily mean we get it Right. Judas didn't, the disciples often didn't. We can be doing and doing and doing, but we miss the whole point, can't we? And yet, when our hearts are close to God's heart, they are marked by displays of faith that transcend sensibility. How can we let extravagant and beautiful acts of faith overtake the practical? This is the first way that we make sense of Mary's wasteful display. Here's the second. Keep going with me. I think Mary responded this way to Jesus because she had a taste of the wasteful and extravagant grace of God. Mary's action, which was this outpouring of her love, is a small reflection of the nature of the God that she worships. We do not worship a practical utilitarian God. Even in the beginning of the Bible, the creation story in Genesis, it says the Lord not only created a garden for the man and woman with every tree in it that was useful for food, but what? But also every tree that was beautiful for the eye to see. My point is that sometimes we actually reflect God the most when we are being the most impractical. God, in his nature, is extravagantly wasteful in his love and his grace and his mercy. Mary's act of worship is a small reflection of the God who she worships. We worship a God who is extravagantly wasteful and how is that? How is he? In the outpouring of his grace. One of the men I went back to school to study, you're surprised if those who know me, it's not Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually. There's this guy by the name of Paul Tillich. He was also a German theologian, these old white guys. And like another theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was, he was one who stood up to Hitler in World War II. Paul Tillich would not endorse the Nazi party, and therefore he lost his professorships in Germany. He ended up being invited to the states, and, He lived the rest of his life away from Germany teaching in the states at famous schools like Harvard and University of Chicago and Columbia and all those. One of Paul Tillich's goals was this. It was to take traditional Christian concepts and symbols he felt had lost their power and hit the refresh button on them. He believed what we needed to do was rediscover the power of what felt like outdated concepts. And an example of this was that an example of the, the concept he rediscovered was sin. He would say, we don't understand the word sin anymore. We don't get it. We don't really have the feeling that should accompany that word. It's been lost to us. So whenever he spoke of sin, he would use only that word briefly, and he would speak of separation instead. He said, we, un- we can understand separation. We're separated from ourselves. Because of sin, we are estranged from who we really should be. Because of sin, we are separated from one another. We're separated from how relationships should really look and we're separated from God. We're separated from the being to which we actually belong. Another Christian concept he rediscovered was the word grace. Grace, like sin, is difficult to describe because we really don't understand it. Is grace just forgiveness? Is grace some kind of ethereal force or magical power that God has? Well, fertility, grace is neither of those things. Grace is what overcomes the separation of sin. It is within grace that the separation from God is overcome. So grace occurs in spite of separation. So ultimately, here's what grace really is. Grace is the acceptance of that which is rejected. Grace is the acceptance of that which is rejected. Grace is the reunion of God's life to our life. And as I thought of Mary in this story, I think Mary experienced a taste of God's grace, which led to her to, her to be such, so bold. Why do I say that? Well, she experienced the overcoming of separation. She was separated from her brother through the ultimate separation, which is death. Jesus offered to her and to her brother grace, They both experienced God's grace, this gift of reunion to one another through God's work. And through this reunion, she tasted just a bit of the ultimate reunion of what it might look like to be united to God. You know, it's important to remember that grace is a gift. There's nothing that Lazarus did to earn being resurrected. (laughs) Jesus just raised him from the dead. There was nothing that Mary did to earn the right for her brother to be resurrected. No, Jesus just did it out of the extravagance of his grace. Grace is a gift. And here's what Paul Tillich says about grace in one of his sermons. I don't agree with everything Paul Tillich says, but I can get on board with him here. He says this, grace strikes us when we are in great pain and restlessness. It strikes us when we walk through a dark valley of a meaningless and empty life. It strikes us when we feel our separation is deeper than usual because we have violated another life or a life that which we loved or from which we were estranged. It strikes us when our disgust for our own being, our indifference, our weakness, our hostility, our lack of direction and composure have become intolerable to us. It strikes us when year after year the longed-for perfection of life does not appear and when the old compulsions reign within us as they have for decades, when despair destroys all joy and courage, sometimes at that moment, a wave of light breaks into our darkness and it is though a voice were saying, you are accepted. You are accepted, accepted by that which is greater than you. Don't try to do anything now. Perhaps later you will do much. Do not seek for anything. Do not perform anything. Do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. If that happens to us, we experience grace. I think Mary felt a wave of light break into her darkness. She felt the grace of God encounter her in a powerful way in her dark valley of grief and loss. All she could do as a reaction to that grace was sit at Jesus' feet and pour oil on them as her heart reflected back to God the outpouring of the grace that she had experienced. Have you experienced this kind of grace? God's grace has a way of encountering us in interesting times. God's grace meets us when we're in great pain. His grace meets us when we're restless. God's grace meets us when we're sick of ourselves and our own long-standing destructive patterns and habits. God's grace meets us when we have screwed up and we feel shamed. God's grace meets us when we come to understand that our relationship with the person we love is broken in significant ways. God's grace meets us when we struggle with meaninglessness in the monotony of our work. God's grace meets us when we're discouraged by how long despair sits within us. God's grace meets us when we have this nagging feeling that everything is empty. And God's grace meets us when we have this feeling that our relationship with God has broken down. And we're now just confused about what to believe. God's grace meets us at interesting times. I want to let you know this morning that you worship a God who is extravagantly wasteful in his grace. God's grace offered through Jesus overcomes your discouragement, overcomes your emptiness, overcomes your destructive patterns, overcomes your relational problems, and it overcomes your shame but do you know where God's grace begins? God's grace begins by realizing God accepts you through his son Jesus. God's grace is the acceptance of that which is rejected. You might reject yourself. You might feel like you are rejected by God. Let me encourage you that through Jesus, you are accepted. Grace starts with accepting Jesus and through him, you are accepting God's acceptance of you. I don't believe Mary's anointing of Jesus was an attempt to earn God's grace or an attempt to perform or an attempt to make herself better in his eyes. Mary's action was an extravagant display of faith that stemmed out of the overflow of grace that she had experienced from Jesus' work in her life. We worship a God who is extravagantly wasteful in his grace. Now, that's a sermon in and it of itself, but John doesn't stop there, he keeps going. Look with me now at verse 12. John writes The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done a sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now first off, John is making sure we know the Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus. He keeps making these theological points. He's making a point that, yes indeed, make no mistake, Jesus is the Messiah, the one who was prophesied in the heart of the Old Testament. But again, this isn't a theological point we can gloss over. John's wanting us to listen up to that. This is the Messiah we've all been waiting for. But second, and this is equally as important to catch, he's also making it clear the disciples did not understand this. Jesus was fulfilling these Old Testament prophecies But it wasn't until he was resurrected that they understood the significance of these events. And even more, John is making it clear that the crowd is really just following Jesus because they had heard he'd raised this guy from the dead. So they were drawn to this Messiah because he performed this miracle. They were infatuated with him. They were caught up in this movement surrounding Jesus. So the crowds didn't really understand what was happening with Jesus. They thought he was here to take over, but actually Jesus was here to die. The disciples didn't understand that Jesus was fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. And like the crowd, they didn't understand he was heading to his death. They were all just swept up in all of the events. And here's what I'm trying to say. There's a lot of misunderstanding happening here that John is making us aware of. And there's something very different in the act of worship we see from Mary as compared to what we see in the crowds here. Mary's action is a personal, intimate act that demonstrates faith and worship The crowds, even though they are fulfilling Old Testament prophecies, are just participating in a type of ecstatic infatuation. These two situations are not the same. Again, one is an act of worship, the other is infatuation. And at the risk of oversimplifying this, the juxtaposition between the crowds and Mary leads me to ask the question, again, where do we find ourselves in this story? Are you in the crowds or are you Mary? Let me explain. Here's how I would describe the crowds. The crowd is made up of people who find themselves swept up. They're in this phase of thinking that Jesus is cool. There's this idea that he's the Messiah, the miracle worker, the one who will free the Jewish people from their impressors. But it's just infatuation. Is your hope in Jesus because of what he can do for For you? Or is your hope placed in Jesus for who he is? Because you desire more of him and less of you. Maybe he provides for you with a sense of security, that God is on your side, no matter what you do. Maybe he provides you with language to support your political party of choice. Maybe he provides you with the hope that there's more, li- more to life after death, or there's more life after death. Maybe you like hearing that there is a God who is near to you. But these can just be infatuations. Here's how I would describe Mary. Not only does she want Jesus to be near to her, but even more, she wants to be near to Jesus. She worships him, she draws close to him. She offers herself and her life and her most precious resources to him in abundant display of faith. Are we infatuated with Jesus? Or are we just, or are we postured in faith and worship and tasting His grace? And you might be wondering, well Ben, that's cool, but how do you tell the difference between the two? I would say the easiest thing to point to, in this passage at least, is that one costs and the other doesn't. That may be an oversimplification and I don't want to be reductionistic, but it is clear at least to me, on one side, You have infatuation, which just really exists as long as the object one is infatuated with is still cool. Jesus can be that object to us. Infatuation can be cycles of passion for Jesus over the course of our lives, but they never really are building to anything. Because after a while, Jesus becomes boring, we lose interest, but then something happens where we need him to do something for us again. The posture of faith and worship is different. Faith is resilient trust. Worship is a posture of offering. And as we come into this new year, if you want to move beyond infatuation with Jesus to a life of worship, I encourage you to do two things. Maybe you want to recover a life of worship. First is accept God's acceptance of you through Jesus, through Jesus. Move toward him in that way. God has moved near to you. Will you move near to him? And the second is pretty simple, and this is because I love this place. Jump into community here. This is a wonderful place. This is a special place. This is a wonderful community made up of people who love one another well. Or at least they try to love one another well people who show God's extravagant grace to one another, people who live lives of worship, offering themselves and the things they find most precious up to God. Christ Community's downtown campus is not a perfect place. No place is. But there is a deposit of God's love and grace here. And if you haven't felt that yet, you will sense it soon. Stay with this community and together you'll grow in recognizing and experiencing God's extravagant grace and it will lead you into a life of worship. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you for your word that it's not just black words on white pages, it's words of life. Lord, we thank you for your son. Jesus, we thank you for you who are near to us you are Emmanuel, God, with us. Lord, we thank you. Father, we thank you for your extravagant grace through your son, Jesus. We pray that we would be able to accept that and understand that you accept us. May we continue to take steps forward in that vein through this new year. May we offer ourselves up to you We live lives of worship and faith. We love you. It's in the name of your Son, by the power of your Spirit, Father, that we pray these things. Amen.